Well, hello and welcome uh, to the Feeling Bookish podcast. I'm uh, very excited today. I am flying solo without my co-host, uh, Rob Fay, who was not able to make it. But we have a guest uh, who is a young scholar at Bryn Mawr College. He is assistant professor of Russian, Jose Vergara. And he has a newish book called All Future Plunges to the Past, James Joyce in Russian Literature out from Cornell University Press uh, just late last year in 2021. Um, Jose, welcome to the program. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm um, um, also so excited to be here. Yeah, no, this is really, um, your book really, uh, really hit me on the head quite hard because uh, all my life, I'm, you know, I'm 51 now, and all of my life I've been really uh, exploring Russian literature, not in any systematic way, but just because, you know, it's, it's, it's my native language and I'm, you know, it's Russian literature. Who doesn't love it? And then, of course, there was also my Joycean period where I got into Joyce once I learned English and really got amazed, you know, was, was amazed, am amazed by his prose and, and just o overwhelming talent. But I never really thought of connecting the two. Um, I, I remember early in the 90s sometime I bought my parents a Russian translation of Ulysses, uh, and it stood on the shelf unopened <laughs> for many years. Um, and I, I actually, um, I tried reading it and I just gave up because the English was tough enough, you know, so. Mm -hmm. um, but, but there's this whole connection that you've revealed to me of Joyce's influence, influence in 20th century and really 21st century Russian literature. Um, how did this come about? I mean, I know you mentioned a few predecessors to your book about you know, connecting Joyce and Russian literature. Could you mm -hmm. just put this, this, your work uh, in context with maybe other scholarships in that, scholarship in that area? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, so the, the, the book project as a whole um, originated around 2014 or so when I was starting my dissertation. Um, this is my first book, a you know, dissertation project. Um, and I got the idea when I was rereading Ulysses and just some of the, the moments, uh, some of the character characterization and, and the things these characters do uh, in Ulysses reminded me of uh, Yuri Elyesha's novel, Envy, Zavist in Russian. Um, mm -hmm. It opens with this bathroom scene, which recalled for me uh, the kind of uh, toilet and um, uh outhouse scenes in Ulysses and these other uh, kind of parallels just jumped out at me as, as so familiar from, from this Russian novel. Um, so I looked into it a bit and, and saw that uh, Alyesha, uh, this modernist writer from the 20s, kind of the 30s as well, um, had written or participated in conversations and participated in debates about Joyce uh, during this time. Um, and it struck me as... Um, such a kind of obvious topic that hadn't been right. uh, explored right. in, in much detail, at, at least in, in terms of the literary impact. Um, like right. you said, there were um, some, some of my own scholarly pre predecessors, Neil Cornwell, um, I would say is the main one, um, the scholar who, who passed away not, not too many years ago, um, who, whose book, James Joyce and the Russians, looks at the, the critical response um, so I was really interested in how writers read and interpreted and, and used Joyce's ideas. Um, but Cornwell was looking at how um, critics in, in journals and newspapers, et cetera, particularly in the Soviet Union, 
um, encountered Joyce and, you know, all the many complaints, <laughs> more or less, uh, that they had about him throughout the 20th century. Um, and I just wanted to, I suppose what was of, of greater interest to me personally was the, the literary response and wanted to offer um, that perspective and, and dig into those those details. And that's exactly what really made me excited about this book. It's not just a you know look at the criticism that Joyce <laughs> received, uh, but the literary, the actual you know artistic response uh, to him, which was enormous. I mean, you've really opened my eyes to this influence that I, I was completely. I mean, I was a little bit aware of it here and there, you know, having read Shishkin and and Sokolov. Mm -hmm. Uh, but didn't didn't had no idea about the extent of it, uh, and just recently I found out that Akhmatova was really into Joyce, right? Um, yeah, yeah, even the early early people. So, so 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 let's get into it. So so how what is what was your approach the the, the scholarly approach to this book? I mean, you talk about intertextuality, um, mm -hmm. having sort of this this uh, both uh, uh, sort of a. a bottoms up and top to bottom kind of approach. So you kind of cover the whole field using a historical context as well as intertextuality and actually looking at the texts. Um, is that is, is that the right sort of way of putting it? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, for, for me, um, I'm, I'm very much into looking at the text itself and close reading and, and appreciating and uh, trying to uh, wrestle with the details and these connections that that are integrated into the, the, the novels that I looked at themselves. Um, not getting too, I don't know, theory heavy and uh, right. zooming away from the text uh, too much. But, but at the same time, yeah, I was, you know, in, in conceptualizing the project and conceptualizing um, what I wanted to do in, in exploring uh, these dialogues and these, these engagements between the different writers and, and Joyce um, it was important to, me, important to me to consider um, what intertextuality would mean for each one and what, you know, what kinds of approaches they were taking. Um, so, so, yeah, I wanted to have kind of these five main case studies. Each of the chapters is mostly about one author each. Um, uh, and I looked at you know, not just one kind of monolithic Joyce, there's not one Russian Joyce out there, but um, each of these writers kind of crafted and um, made up a, a, their own personal Joyce, the kind of in Russian, right? There's this, this idea of my Pushkin, the, the father of Russian literature, Russian poetry, Alexander Pushkin, um, and lots of essays and, and texts called my Pushkin, Moy Pushkin. Um, so I think there's something similar here. The Elyeshas and the Bokovs who responded to Joyce all saw him in a certain way um, and uh, chose to kind of pull out certain elements and engage with certain elements from Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake or uh, the kind of broader Joycean um, right. project. As you, yeah. point, as you point out, the Shishkin's Joyce is not the same as Nabokov's Joyce. They're, they're, right, they're yeah, exactly. Two very, very... Very different things from him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, and like you were saying, I kind of ground all of these, each of these case studies in the historical context as well, because how someone was reading him in the twenties, like Ilyasha, would be much different than Shishkin reading him um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, when so much more was available to to read. 
Well, speaking of that, as far as access goes, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how, uh, how especially mm-hmm. the early, like Yuri Olasha, how did the, how did those guys get their hands on, on, on Ulysses? Did they read it in, in the original, in, in, you know, with their trans- early translations? Yeah. How did you sort of enter the Soviet era, you know, be, even pre-Soviet era? Well, I guess not yeah, pre-Soviet. So, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, um, I, one of the first um, responses to Joyce, in, in, in specifically Ulysses, um, was a 1923 piece, if I'm not mistaken, by uh, Evgeny in a journal that he published, the, the author of, of We, the famous dystopian novel. Mm-hmm. Um, in which he kind of summarizes Ulysses. It's it's a little bit unclear whether he actually read it, but in any case, it kind of popularized the idea of, of Joyce and his art in uh, the early Soviet Union. Um, yeah, he, he talks about the, the, the novel's plot and then the, the stylistic and technical innovations that Joyce was developing um, in Ulysses. And then from there, in 1925, there was this partial translation of Ulysses. Um, and when I say partial, I mean very <laughs> partial. There's uh, snippet samples from a number of the different episodes from, from Ulysses, but it's nowhere near you know, the whole novel. Um, but there's the beginning, the opening, and then the, the, the end with Molly's soliloquy, uh, the, you know, the full stream of consciousness, and then little samples from different parts in between. Um, so it, it does present a kind of overview of this, this novel that's constantly shifting and um, totally unstable in, in many different ways. Um, so these these early Soviet writers, early modernists, or excuse me, early Soviet modernists like Alyesha and, and Zamyatsin um, had this kind of early exposure uh, to Ulysses in particular. Um, and then from there, in the late 20s, there were other translations um, of other works, um, the Dubliner stories. Um, and then in the thirties, um, there was, a, uh, I don't know, a, a, a bigger, I suppose, attempt to, to translate Ulysses in its entirety. Um, that lasted for a few years, a number of years, but, um, by 1937, so, you know, high Stalinism, uh, it was really stopped and there, there wasn't a complete, um, Ulysses at that time. Um, uh, the translation of Portrait of the Artist was translated in the, in the 30s as well. Um, so anyway, in short... You that, know, seemed to have, that, that seemed to have the... Sorry to interrupt. That, that oh, Portrait okay. of the Artist seemed to have much more of a wide readership uh, in Russia. Am I correct? Because a lot of people in your book seem to be responding to that as well. Always going back to you know, maybe the dead, you know, some stories in the Dubliners... Mm-hmm. Portrait um, and Ulysses becomes sort of this this avant garde um, to almost limit. Uh... Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, the 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 kind of main through line that I follow, um, having to do with lineages and, and paternity, and uh, Joyce's uh, Shakespeare theory about the artist that self creates his lineage or her lineage, um, you know, comes from Ulysses. In that sense, I think Ulysses is really. Uh, the main text, as it is, I think, in general, in, in Joyce studies and in responses to Joyce around the world. Right. Um, right. But yeah, I think having you know early access to, to translations um, of Dubliners and uh, the portrait, as well as you know, the, the other thing to mention here is that 
you know, copies of the English Ulysses were being uh, brought into the Soviet Union um, in the 20s um, when there was this, when there were still, you know, open exchanges. Um, it was still possible to bring in literature that, you know, by the mid 30s would be condemned and suppressed and could really land you in trouble. Um, I had this, this period, uh, I had this quote, yeah. uh, I have this quote, Jose, uh, speaking of the suppression, the, the first mm-hmm. all union con- Congress of Soviet writers, the Karl Radek quote about, about mm-hmm. yeah, Joyce yeah. being a pile of dung teeming with worms <laughs> photo- photographed with a cinema apparatus through a microscope. That's Joyce. Right. So yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a denunciation right there. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and Ilyasha was part of, part of these, these discussions at the time and would, you know, say kind of mixed send mixed messages anyway about about Joyce right but you know this young young um genre I mean young young something called Soviet literature is born around this time and they're trying to sort of come up with their identity what what does it mean to be a Soviet writer and I had no idea that they um conceptually they almost pitted themselves almost uh, literally against Joyce, calling Joyce, uh, I think he called it, um, well, somebody called it um, capitalist primitivism, uh, something mm-hmm. like that. And so there, you know, it seems like social realism was, uh, was sort of the counterbalance, uh, you know, to counterbalance Joyce's decadence, specifically Joyce, not just, you know, the West. But Joyce yeah. was kind of singled out as, as the enemy. Of social realism is that is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I I think his his brand of literature. Um, he he was often paired with uh, John Dos Passos, um, uh-huh. in a lot of these these discussions and these debates and meetings of, of Soviet writers, um, which seem really uh, fascinating, but also totally ridiculous. And these these claims they were they were making about Joyce being you know, or his work being a pile of, of dung. Um, right. Um, but but yeah, I think you know he's held up consistently in in these conversations in his art um, as decadent, as uh, interested in things that uh, socialist realism should not be in the kind of uh, the sexual, the earthly, the um, the bodily, um, um, and they can start defining what socialist realism is and what Soviet art. Uh, should be or what they want it to be in opposition. It's a kind of negative definition that uses Joyce as a, you know, as a fulcrum or as a, a lens um, to define what should not be produced here. Um, and, and on some level, it's it's also kind of absurd because um, there's a lot in Ulysses and a lot in uh, Joyce's art that is, um, I think, against uh, capitalism and you know presents it the the faults of the capitalist system and of, of the West and, um, and the Dubliners stories, of course, like the kind of um, traumas and, and difficulties that these people's, uh, that these people experience in, in their lives because of the, uh, uh, the conditions that they live in, in, in Ireland and in the West. Um, and in Ulysses, you know, it's this story about an average man going about his day um, I mean, he happens to be a canvasser. He's selling advertising, which maybe is not the, the most ideal Soviet job. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a story about a common man. And um, 
on on some level, right? That that should that should appeal to socialist realism. I mean, it's the um, it's, it's not it's the heroic. ultimate proletarian novel. <laughs> yeah, it's the yeah, ultimate proletarian novel. Really, yeah. I mean, if you look yeah. at it that way, yeah. for sure. So it's it's, not, it's, it's interesting how heroic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. It's just not so. So so then these young Soviet writers like Olosha, which I, I frankly I'm I'm not familiar with his with his uh, novel uh, Envy, uh, but he, mm -hmm. he the way you write about him, he he was looking for um, some sort of a lineage or paternity, or, or yeah. like you said, using St Stephen's Shakespeare theory. Which actually, can you can you explicate? What I have is SST on my notes, Stephen's Shakespeare theory. It's a, <laughs> such a crucial element, uh, really, for Joyce to sort of give himself a basis as an artist and to delve into this whole theme of your book of, yep. of how do we go on, so to speak, uh, in, within the literary heritage. Mm -hmm. So what is Sh Stephen Shakespeare theory? Yeah, so it's, it's something that's mentioned in the beginning of Ulysses where... Uh, Buck Mulligan teases um, uh, Stephen, Joyce's protagonist, one of the protagonists in Ulysses and, and the protagonist in the portrait of uh, the artist as a young man. Um, but then it gets its full explication in, in episode nine, uh, the Skill and Charybdis uh, episode of Ulysses, where Stephen in the National Library in Dublin describes uh, this, this theory. And it has, it has different components. It has to do with Shakespeare's life and um, the possible um, infidelity between him and, and Anne Hathaway. Uh, but I think, you know, what it boils down to in the core idea for, for Stephen and for Joyce is that uh, Shakespeare represents the self-made artist that um, by electing a literary forefather, um, in Joyce's case, Homer and, and Shakespeare in particular, um, you can kind of cut out the biological you can choose your roots and choose where you come from so that's one component you choose your own father and then by producing by generating art lasting amazing art like ulysses like hamlet etc uh, you become a father to yourself uh, you, you produce you yield your own um your child your your own lineage that the world will remember you for uh, so Shakespeare became a father to himself by producing Hamlet and, and everything else he produced um, and kind of uh, defined himself for the world, for everyone else to, to remember him by this art. Um, so in that sense, you become father, son, and there's the, the Holy Ghost element that is also here and part of this theory of the, the kind of magic, let's say, of artistic creation. Um, and something kind of lingering um, around you. Um, and in the theory, the, the, the Shakespeare connection is that, um, historically speaking, Shakespeare played the role of, of Hamlet's father in a production of, of uh, Hamlet. Um, so in that sense, Shakespeare was also uh, not literally a ghost, but literally played the role of, of right. the ghost as well. Um, yeah, and as I said, as, as you mentioned too, this is kind of uh, the main, or one of the main themes or ideas that a number of these Russian artists kind of latched onto in, in, in a number of different ways. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how how it's really um, it's such a powerful uh, it's it's a magical act, like you pointed out. It's just it really is some there's some sort of a 
aesthetic magic going on with this. And, and the first writer that you, um, you look at, uh, Yuri Alesha, he, um, I have my notes, you're saying something about the European modernism was not applicable everywhere. That's, that was what he was trying to show. <laughs> Because um, I haven't read the book, so I can't really uh, speak to that. Um, but and the whole concept of the self-realized artists, uh -huh. artists who kind of rewrites history, was very attractive to him because they were trying again as as young you know, Soviet writers, they were trying to define themselves, and and without having recourse to the West, what do you do? You have to sort of you have to do it yourself. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I I highly recommend you read and everyone read. <laughs> Uh, Envy. I think it's a brilliant book. It's you know, it's like 150 pages in translation. Um, Why is it not well, more yeah. well known? I mean, I really have this. This is the first time I hear of him. I, I mean, I'm not a scholar, of course, so that's not surprising. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think he ends up on a lot of in, in this work in particular. Not, I, I would say very few of his other texts are you know read, but uh, Envy ends up on a lot of Soviet literature syllabi, um, okay. for instance. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think part of it is that this is his, his main work. He wrote some other plays. He wrote some really great short stories. Um, some of them are kind of interlinked, um, at least in theme and, and sort of overlapping interests. Um, but uh, in the 30s, um, facing these, these kind of mounting pressures, of, of socialist realism and kind of clamp down on experimental art, which he was very much a proponent of. Um, he, he chose to silence himself and um, he, he wrote, he gave a speech and he would write these pieces about how um, he's chosen to, to avoid that path and to, to not take the path of um, this character, this, this figure that he called the beggar. Um, someone who just kind of, uh, wanders and describes the world in these odd, unusual, estranged ways. Um, but he would, you know, he claimed to have have chosen to devote his his life and his art now to the the Soviet cause and to the new generation that was going to kind of rise up and, and replace him and um, be the new Soviet person. Um, and in that sense, he's he's a tragic figure. There's you know there's a, a Soviet critic who wrote this big book about him and kind of the main charge there is that he that Ilyasha sold out essentially and, and gave up and um resigned himself to this fate um mm. i don't know i mean it's, it's hard to imagine what anyone would do facing these it, pressures it sounds like 30s. he uh, yeah it sounds like he pulled a joyce uh with silence exile and cunning except maybe <laughs> yeah internal yeah. exile in his case you know yeah um mm. Yeah, I mean, he fell silent and he, he worked on some film scripts and it's not like, he, he also became known um, as this, uh, this this writer who would hang out in a, in a cafe in Moscow and tell stories. He was still a storyteller and people would kind of gather around nice. him. Um, but nice. yeah, this, you know, he, he didn't, he wasn't well, you able can't, to generate any more. You, you can't blame him because during that time, it wasn't one of the... The translators of Ulysses, the Russian translators of Ulysses, was um, was either uh, uh, executed or put in yeah. a labor camp because, specifically because of his translation of Joyce. 
Yeah, so I mean, this, this was truly a dangerous occupation. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And, you know, this wasn't, wasn't the time to be uh, experimenting. Yeah, it wasn't an aesthetic choice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we got to put that in that context and really kind of make sense of it. It was, it was truly an existential dread around, around literary mm-hmm. matters. Uh, so <laughs> you had to really take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, well, speaking of taking it seriously, uh, how about Nabokov, your second writer? who I'm familiar with a little bit more. And uh, I had no idea that, um, you know, I learned this from your book, that he uh, wrote to Joyce in 1933 and offered to translate Ulysses. And that letter was That's never right. re- you know, replied to, right? Well, yeah. And it's, I know it's, the book of, yeah. Go yeah, ahead. It's, it's, I mean, the, the translation, unfortunately, never happened. You know, the actual translation of the book. Um, mm-hmm. So, it was, and, and there's no record of re- response specific, specifically to that offer that um, Nabokov had made. Um, he and Joyce had you know, run in similar circles and they had a few encounters and um, had dinner together. I love the idea of, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love the idea of Joyce going to his Pushkin, to Nabokov's Pushkin lecture. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> boy. Yeah, it's this brilliant Yeah, this brilliant description of this, this uh, uh, lecture that Nabokov is supposed to give. Um, and at the, at the last minute, he's, he's asked to replace another speaker um, and has to deliver this lecture in front of the Hungarian soccer team, a Hungarian soccer team there. Um, and he looks up and he sees Joyce's glasses glinting in the audience and it kind of, you know, makes oh, up for the, great. The, the embarrassment he's feeling. Um, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the Nabokov's uh, Russian period is so... Um, uh, you talk about specifically about Dar, the gift, which is, mm-hmm. um, again, you've, you've opened my eyes to a different reading of this book completely. I have to go back and reread it. I have not seen any of these parallels before. Um, and so I'm super excited now to go back and read it with your book in mind. Uh, even the title, uh, you know, Dar, D-A-R in Russian, the gift, uh, mm-hmm. has the word yes, da, in it, which is Ulysses also has yes in the title. Y E S. There's so many parallels, and as 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 hard as Nabokov tried to deny that he's read Joyce and was influenced by him, it just sounds like he you know, doth protest too much because there is this work is suffused with uh, Joyce's spirit, and instead of using Shakespeare and Homer like Joyce used, uh, he uses Pushkin as this kind of a literary f- uh, forefather. Right. Uh, and it's it's fascinating to see him kind of weave in and out of that uh, paternity issue. Also, not trying to sort of um, uh, create a father ex ex nihilo, sort of like you know from nothing and stand on his own as an artist. But he actually is trying to recover his father because his father was you know tragically. He lost to him. He had to leave him, and his his father was shot, and it was a it was a real you know, he yearned to get that back. And he was also you know not in Russia. He was not able to actually go to Russia and be and live as a Russian. He was an emigre, so it was a different right. Am I correct? It's a different sort of relationship to paternity. Uh, yet, yet yeah. at the same time, also he really had to deal with it. He couldn't just ignore it. It was re- really a major part of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And this novel's, you know, about a young artist like Nabokov, like Joyce, um, uh, an exile, an emigre, trying to make his way in Berlin, um, publishing poetry, uh, 
trying to understand his situation and understand his relationship to, you know, the exile and, and to having lost um, his father. In the novel, uh, the protagonist feels that his his father never returns from a expedition um, in Central Asia. Uh, so it's not the same thing as Nabokov's father, who's you know killed in this botched assassination attempt. Um, but there's all these parallels to Nabokov's own life, and then I propose, and it sounds like you're you're convinced. Um, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> that uh, he's also using the, the Shakespeare theory, but inverting it. Right? He he doesn't want right. to cut cut links, but he's trying to to merge them. And you know, it's it's possible, right? It's a it's a kind of rewriting of the theory. Um, they still elect forefathers, and you know, use similar techniques as Joyce, but. The, the end result is different. You bring together what's been lost um, in this this rewriting of of, um, of Ulysses and of Joyce's project, um, and because of that, that's you know uh, my idea here that I that I put forth that he wasn't able to actually translate Ulysses or, or chose not to, or you know it's just one of those things in, in literary history that the, the what ifs that didn't happen, um, but that we can read the gift, we can read. Dar as a uh, mistranslation of, of Ulysses, nonetheless. It's a, a translation oh, of, and the key of mm. the Russian immigration and, and the key of Nabokov's art instead. And it really, it really changes the reading, I think. I haven't really reread it yet, but I'm, I'm so excited about uh, attempting that because when I read it, it's, you know, it's maybe a couple of decades ago, it's been a while, but I remember <laughs> really being impressed with Nabokov's. Um, it's his last Russian novel, and it's just so rich, and it has that sort of self-created artist quality to it. Um, he's also hanging on to his language for dear life, seems like. Uh, yeah. And and um, my first Nabokov book was actually Priglashenia na Kazinya, Invitation to a Beheading, which mm -hmm. is really uh, should be viewed as a companion volume to Dar, to the Gift. I think they should be read together. Yeah. It's sort of the, I don't know, to me, it's like the, the mythopoetic heart of the gift. Um, <laughs> uh, in fact, the, that imagery of, of, of Cincinnatus, the hero of uh, Invitation to a Beheading, as he's yearning to, to go there, là-bas, over there, this, this other land where the artist is self-created, this, mm -hmm. this kind of aesthetic, aesthetic world, where, whereas he's trapped in this weird Kafkaesque, and you know, speaking of influences, again, it's a very, I mean, it's a very Kafkaesque book. Uh, you know, it's, it reads like Kafka, and uh, again, the yeah. book of denied any kind of influence. But now Another I'm very, very yeah. suspicious yeah. of, <laughs> very suspicious of those denials now. Um, but it's, it's it, in my mind, it's stuck. In fact, it to me, it's sort of a kind of a. Uh, a uh, the, the the sort of the overall structure of my aesthetic understanding that there's a it's almost like a gnostic thing where there's this world mm -hmm. and then there's there's the aesthetic world which is where all sensitive folks like us want to be or spend their time in or just somehow translate ourselves into that world by immersing ourselves in literature either as readers or, or writers or, or both i guess um, so it, it yeah, really yeah. set my set my sort of aesthetic uh, sensibility uh, that book, and I think uh, Joyce really fits right into that as well. Um, I think a lot of writers have this kind of gnostic 
understanding of the world there there is this the sort of the the gross world of of everyday events and then joyce comes around and says well it's not just your whole home kind of events it, this is it <laughs> this is this is this is the other world you know by by using our aesthetic sensibility we can sort of transform ourselves into that space and uh, i mean that's yeah. why we love them right yeah that's the beauty uh, you know the the toilets the outhouses the you know, dublin yeah. streets it's the, the beauty is to be found there um yeah i remember uh, my my trip in uh, to russia in 2014 going to the the book of museum and seeing his shoes mm -hmm. <laughs> just for some reason and you even talk about some of the this uh, uh yeah i think your book delves into a lot of details about you know the actual uh, footwear textual yeah. details there's a lot of stuff about feet uh <laughs> you know in joyce in in the book of and i just it reminded me of his shoes that are for some reason stayed in my memory and i took oh, a yeah. picture of them <laughs> i don't know if i thought uh, so yeah. now yeah so so now we have we have this weird um, Nabokov is an emigre. He's not really a Russian writer at this point, right? He's, I mean, he is and he isn't. Uh, and then we have this. Yeah, I mean, this... that's part of the the debates there, right? Where did Russian literature end up, and what is it? Is it abroad? Is it you know what's happening back in the Soviet Union? Nevertheless, um, right? Yeah, he, yeah. Right. He's you know he's his work is definitely part of these debates. Well, it reminds me of Nabokov's claim when he was. Um, what were you saying about uh, his translation translation work when he tried to translate his work his english work to russian he found that he really couldn't do it uh because he had lost touch with the language you know if you don't live if you're not surrounded by it if you're not in that milieu of you know of having being you know being your water you're the fish you're in a different ocean so <laughs> the waters are different so even though you still have that language, and I think Sokolov also talks about that, he was also an emigre, or yeah. <laughs> he, you know, he did not live, well, well, we'll say that for a little bit later, we'll talk about Sokolov, but you know, there's, there's yeah. that, you lose touch, you lose touch with the language. I mean, I certainly felt that. Uh, my, I'm, I'm a native speaking, speaker of Russian, but my Russian is horrible. I have no cultural, very or very little cultural context for it, you know, at least contemporary cultural context. Um, and so you, it feels like a foreign language. I left in 78 okay. when I was only like seven. So I barely okay. just learned how to read. Um, luckily, I kept up with my reading. That's the only thing that kept my language, uh, my Russian language decent. And of course, yeah, yeah. You know, speaking with my parents. Uh -huh. uh, but unlike a lot of immigrants, I did not move to a Russian speaking area, both in Israel and in America. And so I never had really Russian speaking friends. And nice. so it, it really, the only exposure I had was you know, reading Dar, Nabokov's Dar. Yeah. Um, and 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 Sokolov. Um, uh, so it's, but I can I can sense that it's not really, even though it's my native language, it's not really, and it's very very frustrating. No, um, yeah. And I think I, you I, can I, sense that in the Bokov as well. Yeah, it's well. First, I'll just say that you know I have a similar experience with Spanish. I, I moved to the states when I was a child, and it's you know, it's, it's a complicated <laughs> story, and that I, I think a similar sense of frustration um but yeah i mean it, it's always so fascinating to hear um emigre stories and emigre perspectives on language and what what it can mean um and how they retain it or not um and, and on this note on, on the book of um i always think of one of my professors uh gene uh, gennady Bartarla, uh, who was a Nabok nabokovian um, he died a, a few years ago, 
um, a brilliant, brilliant man and, and uh, specialist in Nabokov. And he immigrated, I want to say, maybe around the same time as you, maybe maybe 60s, like 68 or 78, somewhere in that decade. Um, but he, his, one, one of his ideas was that the, the Soviet Union uh, didn't exist, like it didn't exist, and then Russia ended with the revolution. There was no more Russia whatsoever. Um, so he never went back, but he was also, uh, he retained the pre-revolutionary uh, orthography Russian orthography. So he was using all the letters that they got rid of shortly after the revolution. He was writing in you know, this old, old language uh, and using some of that, you know, older vocabulary, not, you know, Sovietized Russian. Um, so he, I don't know, <laughs> he kind of became his own uh, Nabokovian uh, character in a way. Um, Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, then, then let's say after Nabokov's uh, Dar, we have mm -hmm. we'll go back to go back to the actual Soviet Union, and Joyce kind of disappears from the scene, right? He is yeah. frowned yeah. upon, and so nobody talks about him in you know in case you know, and if they do, they're they're in fear for their lives. So from about the late thirties to what nineteen mid fifties or so, yeah, uh, this is uh, long he's silence. gone from the scene. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's you know an obituary, little pieces here and there. Um, you know, there, people are still reading him. You mentioned Akhmatova. Um, she, Mandelstam. Yeah. yeah, she and Mandelstam, yeah. two of the you know best modernist Russian poets, were reading him together. She in the original, he in German. Um, and this was in 1937. Um, after that, the next couple decades, mostly silence, public silence. But you know, there was still access to him, just very. You know, discreet on the down low choice. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and then comes the thaw, right? Khrushchev comes to power. <laughs> There's a little bit more freedom. The the belt is loosened, so to speak. And we have Andrei Bitov, Pushkin's ha Pushkin House, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Which uh, is kind of both, I guess, uh, he attempted to, re you know, to, I guess, return to modernism because there was really no modernism in Russia at that point. But then he quickly realized that he really couldn't do it, not not with the sort of totalitarian aesthetics uh, going around. Uh, he couldn't really adopt uh, this kind of Joycean um, way of doing things. Um, though he did, uh, he, he's got this, I love this uh, ironic footnote where he, he was thinking of an alternate title to the, the book Pushkin House, and that was Hooligan's Wake. Yeah. So yeah. we have all this Ulysses talk, and now we're beginning to hear something about Finnegan's Wake, which is my favorite choice work. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about Pushkin House and how uh, Beethoven had to kind of reintroduce Joyce in, in, in a very careful way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. He... Um, so, so Bitov is part of this generation that came of age and started writing after Stalin, um, which presented, you know, as I was saying before, new circumstances, a new situation um, for them to consider as they are, you know, in encountering writers like like uh, Joyce. It's not it's not high Stalinism. They're not going to be sent to the camps for for reading and um, engaging with Western literature, it's just not the exact uh, same circumstances. Um, but on the other hand, one of the 
difficulties here is that they, they, they realize that they're belated and have been cut off from uh, the modernist tradition from all these writers like them both, like Joyce, um, all these writers that they would have had, had, would have had access to had they been born in the West and they, you know, not lived under Stalin and, uh, and Soviet rule. Um, and that's, that, that's a lot to, t to take in. How do you, uh, kind of find your place in, in literature broadly understood, um, if there's so many gaps in your education, so to speak, and in your awareness of what's already been done, because um, you might try something, but then realize that it's already been done by someone else, so you feel belated, you feel inadequate. Um, and Pushkin House, uh, it's named um, after the uh, kind of familiar name of uh, a research institute in, in St. Petersburg or Leningrad at the time, uh, again, named after Pushkin the father of Russian literature. Um, so it's a kind of symbol for Russian literature itself and, and scholarship and um, the kind of devotion to Russian literature um, that's all intermingled, intertwined. Um, and in this novel, uh, it's hard to summarize. I, I, I don't know if <laughs> my description in, in, yeah, no, it's a in tough the book one, made right? sense, yeah. but it was... You know, it's, it did, it's it a did. story of a, of, uh, a young uh, philologist who um, is growing up and realizes that his grandfather was arrested, sent to the camps, and he's a kind of Bakhtinian figure. He's based partly on Bakhtin, uh, the grandfather. Uh, another family friend uh, also comes back, and this is kind of ghosts from the past re-emerging re, re after they've been rehabilitated and reintegrated to some extent within society. Um, and so this hero, uh, uh, Yola, has to uh, reconcile himself to, to this reemerged past, this history, um, and what it means to be, um, a, you know, the, the grandson of someone who you thought was, you know, never around and was gone. Um, and so he starts playing with these what he calls the grandfather hypothesis or alternative grandfather hypothesis, which is very similar in some ways to the Shakespeare theory that maybe his father isn't his father. And it's actually uh, the family friend or the grandfather. There's all these ties uh, that he kind of tries on these different masks that he tries on to, to make sense of everything that's been going on uh, to find himself both in terms of society and in terms of literature and where, where he belongs um, in these strained and um, kind of corrupted spaces in the Soviet Union where there's so many lies and so much violence and so much trauma that, that lingers um, uh, lingers on it, it's it's a it's a very uh, I think the atmosphere must have been very schizophrenic uh, at that yeah. time you yeah. know? And, uh, uh, I was just recently reading a lot about um, you know, cybernetic cybernetics uh, systems theory and and Gregory Bateson, who um, so interesting, very interesting, kind of a interdisciplinary thinker. Uh, he's the one who originated the the concept of the double bind, uh -huh. and I think uh, you know, which is I guess you can summarize a double bind as um, a message that's refuted by its context. Uh, a lot of times, people when you compare it to Catch Twenty Two, Joseph Heller's Catch Twenty Two, similar but not quite the same. But mm -hmm. I think the Soviet that Soviet 
period is definitely characterized by a double bind, a major double bind, because what you see, all the parades, all the hurrah, hurrah for us, for the so, you know, Soviet peoples, um, was refuted by the reality of it uh, that was uh, horrendous and repressive. And so everybody lived in this double bind, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a hor- it's a horrible way to live. Uh, um, and I think yeah, artists it sounds, like me that were quite trying to find... Today. Yeah. They were trying to find a way of yeah exactly it's happening today as well um so artists are always always trying to find a way of you know, out of this double bind and the the one step that i think they share with joyce is this it's a meta step you are trying to just like with shakespeare's uh, uh theory uh the self-created artist um they're trying to sort of uh step outside of the context because the context is so horrendous and it's kind of a mm-hmm. meta move it's it's a it's a trick it's again it's going back to the magic trick um we talked about earlier um and i think that's why art is so important especially in repressive regimes because it gives you a way out uh of that double yeah. bind so that you don't go completely nuts because a lot of people went nuts and lived really nutty crazy lives uh you know uh, within the system um so it's yeah. it's i, I yeah, I just find it interesting. There's a kind of a double bind connection here. Absolutely, uh, in my, yeah. In recent uh, reading. Mm. I mean, I think there's different ways to respond to it, but I think you're you're absolutely right. The sort of imaginative um, escape is really crucial to to a number of these writers, Beethoven and Sokolov in, in particular, and and for Beethoven, you know, part of the escape is to to recognize the the impossibility of catching up. Um, yeah, for, it's for sad. him, it's a yeah, sad. yeah. For for him, it, the one of the key images is Zeno's paradox that uh, you'll never catch up. The uh, Achilles, right? Achilles will never catch up with the the tortoise. It's always going to be um, one step ahead of you. The past you can't recover. But his response, and I think it's a valid one, is to just kind of accept it and and take a playful sort of ludic approach to it. And, um, to pepper Pushkin House, his novel, with with all these allusions to 19th century literature, to Joyce, to other 20th century works, to Nabokov, right. um, and uh, kind of decorate this space, this literary space, with elements from these other works and make something new out of it, imagine a new possibility um, from what would otherwise, like you said, kind of drive you drive you crazy and uh, sort of render you right. mute. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a way to escape that. Hence Hooligan's Wake, right? This ludic exactly. kind of aspect yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which, you know, kind of is a good segue to, to Sokolov because um, he he also had this, uh, well, he had a very different background. First of all, I mean, I, was, I, I knew about this because I've, you know, I've read Sokolov uh, many years ago and I remember mm-hmm. being amazed by it, but I was amazed by it again, reading it in your book uh, about his biography. I mean, born yeah. in what Ottawa, Canada, right. lived here for the first four or five years of his life. His parents were expelled because they were thought to be spies. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you, you tell the story because then he goes back to the Soviet Union. He pretends to be he joins the army. He pretends to be mad, like in a in a, yeah, in a bizarre. Yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's just all, you know all the components you can imagine. I mean, a, any one of these components, I think, would make a great artist a great biography. Novel. Yeah, and then yes. great novel too, uh, but somehow it's all of them, right? Yeah, so he has these spy parents that have to they they have to flee um, Canada 
because uh, there's a, a defector. Um, uh, and they were all involved in providing information about the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union. Um, so anyway, they have to flee with him when he's very little. Uh, there's a, apparently a car chase involved and escape on a submarine. Uh, wow. they, they get to the, <laughs> wow. Soviet Union, the Soviet Union in Moscow. Um, I think pretty immediately, you know, he's, he's miserable. He, he, he's, of course. you know, this is part of the, the mythology and self mythology of Sokolov, but, um, just always out of, out of place and, and recognizes that he wants something different, even when he's fairly young. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, studies Spanish and English, goes to military Institute and to, to escape that um he he pretends to be insane and has these you know stories these uh bits i guess that is uh something that is going to explode in his chest and you know this is not an uncommon um story as well in the soviet union with many dissident uh figures dissidents dissident people uh having to to feign madness in order to escape well, speaking of a catch twenty two, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's exactly yeah. it. And he, you know, he tries to flee uh, to or through um, uh, Iran, Tehran, to uh, Iran, right? Yeah, That's amazing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> on foot. And his dad helps because his dad is well connected. Uh, helps kind of cover that up and prevent any, you know, really bad fate from that. Um, but yeah, you know. It, it, Kind of wanders around. He gets married. He lives um, in more in the central uh, region, and then also escapes in a way to a nature preserve where he's kind of gathering his thoughts and ideas, and generates this first novel, *A School for Fools*, as well as the kind of experience and language and um, atmosphere that that will generate his second novel, uh, *Between Dog and Wolf*. Um, yeah, and then eventually, right, uh, manages to get out of the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, that involves uh, an appeal to get married and uh, hunger strikes, all sorts of things, and more wow. of these, you know, um, very dramatic <laughs> twists and turns that uh, uh, would be enough for a novel on on their own. Um, yeah, and then settles well, in. Uh, yeah different places but uh, America and Canada, and Canada. Right. yeah right yep well he's the he's the, the writer that I that I really um after the book of in your book that really spoke to me because I, mm -hmm. I remember reading school for fools and in russian um and being just just blown away um he circle yeah. is is an artist for art's sake kind of guy uh he's the first russian writer that I read that resembled a little bit in my mind Finnegan's Wake, that kind of a blending of time. Time is everywhere, contemporary, just like there is no time or the, the, the yeah. ahistorical something or other. And he 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 liked Finnegan's Wake, you know, unlike unlike Nabokov, Beethoven, and maybe even Olosha. I don't know if you've read that or tried reading it. Um, he actually liked it and was influenced by it. And... Um, you know, the use of the you know the power of language to transcend mundane reality, uh, language itself as the hero of the book. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not the you know, the artist or anything. You know, it's the language is more important than life. Is a direct quote from School for Fools. Uh, you know, in Finnegan's Wake, we have here comes everybody. The sort of the the prototypical person, uh, H C E. He appears in Finnegan's Wake in many many guises, um, and uh, Sokolov has. Uh, 
a similar uh, thing. It's called Those Who Came, T-W-C. Mm -hmm. um, and so they are very much uh, like two peas in the pod, uh, to use a very waking kind of thing, um, image. Um, so how does, he, how does he deal with this Russian that is, for him, stale? It's not really his language anymore? He, how does he revive it? Uh, how, does he, how does he make language? Uh, the hero of his books. How does he do it? Oh, I mean, that's a huge question. Um, I think he does it in, I know. in every <laughs> in every way possible. Like, like you, I'm I'm a huge uh, fan and, and proponent of, of Sokolov. Um, you know, I I think when it comes down to it, he just treats it as something. It kind of imagines language as, as something that no one has encountered before, and imagines new possibilities for it, and um, treats it as if uh, it's something new to play with, to, to um, create new textures out of. Um, that's one thing. On the other, it's, uh, another thing, um, like you said, there's there's no time, but there's also no uh, characters. There's no stability whatsoever. And so in School for Fools, the, the protagonist, such as he is, um, kind of imagines different points in his life and feels that he can drop into any of them at will, essentially. Um, so there's no time. People who have characters who have died can still speak and still participate in, in life in different ways. Um, and this you know, continues in between Dog and Wolf as well. Um, so no time, no characters. The location is constantly blurring as well. Um, characters are shifting identities. The student so-and-so, Nymphaea, um, those who came, they're all the same. Um, his, t his teacher, his kind of mentor figure also has different identities. Um, the father of his, um, the, the woman he loves, one of his teachers, uh, is also Leonardo. So this is constant shifting on, on all levels. Um, and then, maybe finally, but most importantly, um, since there's no plot, since there's no character, language itself just generates everything, generates the world, generates the meaning. So from sounds, from you know, phonemes, from combinations of, of words, uh, characters emerge. We don't start with plot. We don't start with anything concrete other than the language and the, the sound play. And that generates everything else. Um, and I think it's a combination of these, these different techniques, these different um, methods um, and, and this overall appreciation for language as if it's something novel um, that lets Sokolov get away with, with what he does. Yeah, and he gets away with a lot. I mean, uh, he, Our understanding how, how, of, how, of what he can do. Yeah. Uh, how, does, how does the English translation um, read? I haven't looked at the English translation because the Russian was really... Yeah. You know, it took me a while to sort of get into that that prose but once i was in i was mm -hmm. in I, I i really urge all of our listeners to not forget this sasha sokol of school for fools go with that first book and you'll 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 be all right but how does have you <laughs> have you taken a look at the english translation how does that how does that read yeah yeah and I've, I've, I've taught school for fools once and then i've taught between dog and wolf three times um which can be challenging but, but i think it works well mm. Um, so School for Fools was initially uh, translated by Carl 
Proffer, um, who ran the artist publishing house in Michigan. They published all sorts of brilliant emigre uh, writers um, during the era of the Soviet Union. Um, uh, it's not bad. There's an updated but, version a few years ago by Alexander Boguslavsky, who also translated um, uh, uh, Between Dog and Wolf. And, right. Yeah, and he collaborated with Sokolov on, on both. etc um i think they're you know it's it's difficult <laughs> especially with a writer like sokolov but i think they're quite good they you know certainly convey uh the kind of variations in in sokolov's language there as you know in school fools there are passages that are what might be called more traditional stream of consciousness the, <clears throat> excuse me the um punctuation disappears and and that sort of play comes in. Um, but uh, yeah, I, w- I would recommend it even in translation for sure. No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, I, I love, uh, I love Sokolov's, um, you know, he, he likes viewing all writers as contemporary. Uh, he's got this time without boundaries, uh, time out, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, I love that idea of all writers are your contemporaries. Um, it's a very uh, kind of a rich suggestion, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, it's another um, escape, or that, I don't know. Maybe that's a loaded term, but it's another way to respond to this uh, fear or the pressure of being belated. That um, why mm. should Shakespeare, why should Nabokov uh, be above you or not be contemporaneous with you? If if we just consider it all a massive possibilities that we can pull from and engage with. Um, we can create um, uh, a kind of new understanding of literary relations. And I think that is critical for, for Sokolov. Yeah. So for, so for him, it was not as much of a question as, uh, of overcoming paternity, like, like for Joyce and Olyosha and, you know, the other writers, but more of a question of well, what do you do with this language now? that's you know that's that's been yeah, given I, to I you so. and it's exhausted and it's yeah mm-hmm. yeah you mentioned uh, yeah you mentioned it, i think in, uh, around that area with sokolov about um is it pilevin is that how you pronounce his name victor pilevin or pilevin, pilevin? i'm not sure the, pilevin, yeah but it, at the beginning pilevin. of chapter five i think with shishkin yeah yeah. Okay. So that's because it's moving out to Shishkin because I, I, I remember loving Pilevin for a while and then he just started repeating himself and I was like, okay, yeah. that's enough. Uh, but I didn't know <laughs> yeah. that he rejected Joyce. He's like, Joyce is, you know, highbrow, which is, which is uh, come on. It's a joke. He's not, he was made highbrow by people, but he's, you know, he's, he was at the time kind of a radical lowbrow kind of guy, you know, um, yeah. or at least he combined high and lowbrow, just like Pilevin right, right. did. So it was, it was an interesting, yeah. uh, uh, you know, he rejected Joyce as, as kind of a Western highbrow writer who's not relevant to him, which is kind of funny mm-hmm. because it's just not uh, not what Joyce was. But as you also point out, Joyce, um, I think Frederick Jameson points this out, Joyce is, uh, especially Ulysses, uh, is a book that's always been read already. There's no way to start afresh with it. Uh, there's all these interpretations, you know, like barnacles in a boat, <laughs> pulling it down. <laughs> And you can't get rid of those barnacles. You have to sort of deal with them somehow. Um, you can't just read it fresh, um, which mm-hmm. is a shame because I think 
I think Ulysses, we, we keep forgetting how, you know, we think of it now as like, oh, you know, it's a hard to read book for, you know, uh, literature majors. But at the time, it was a radical slap in the face or something, a radical uh, move that really changed, shook things up. And only later became kind of fossilized, I think, a little bit. Um, uh, with all these barnacles, all these critical barnacles, and I guess time itself, uh, um, even though it you know may not exist according to some people, um, or at least is out of joint. Uh, which is by mm -hmm. the way another uh, I came came to you know, I think time out of joint was in your book or is a quote from somebody, and it immediately reminded me of Philip K. Dick, uh, who has a book called Time uh, Out of Joint. Uh, you know, uh -huh. another science fiction writer, American science fiction writer, completely unrelated to our talk, except that he loved Finnegan's Wake and was deeply influenced by it. So I, oh, really? I you know, also, yeah, his whole, his whole uh, oeuvre is also especially the late Philip K. Dick. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of Gnosticism in there. So even though it's kind of overt, uh, he literally, you know, is into the Gnostic uh, idea. But uh, it ties in with what we were talking about earlier about that aesthetic realm of, you know, Laba over there, Tom, um, that Nabokov talks about, uh, writes mm -hmm. about. So uh, I thought that was, that was kind of interesting. Um, mm -hmm. so, so let's move to Shishkin, you know, the last writer in, uh, that you uh, deal with in the book. Shishkin is a relatively young writer, he's younger than the rest right, at this point, right? I think he was born in 1963. Sokolov is, was born in the 40s. So... Shishkin is, is uh, a definitely a Finnegan's Wake guy. He's definitely a Wakean, uh, uh, mm -hmm. to my mind, uh, more, than, more than a Ulyssian. I don't know if that's even a word. Um, you know, he's got, uh, you know, as opposed to a stream of consciousness, he's got a stream of collective consciousness. He takes waking, you know, the waking language or ideas into his own sort of realm. Um, and, and I love the way you put that, point out that Shishkin sort of contrasts the West's love of the word with the Russian tradition of love of man to produce uh, a literature of technical mastery, uh, but also very humanist at the same time, which is exactly the type of literature that I am attracted to. Um, so can you yeah. talk a little bit about Shishkin yeah. and how, how, you know, how, how you end the book with him and why you sure. chose him? Yeah, yeah I... Um... I mean, for, first, I was just going to say that that quote um, is from an interview where he uh, contrasts Google and well, it's the love of man versus the love of word, the word uh, in the West in Russia, um, and he uses Joyce and Google in particular. Go, uh, Nikolai Google's short story, "The Overcoat," to to represent the love of man, which always strikes me as odd because you know that that seems to me very much yeah. a story that's about language, but. But in any case, then maybe there's some sort of love for a copy of copy of the, the the human in there. Um, but yeah, um, I, I think that's that. A lot of what Joyce has, or excuse me, what Shushkin has said, uh, Mikhail Shushkin has said, it sort of uh, made writing that part of the book easy because um, he he's has said a lot about Joyce. Um, he has this essay that he wrote uh, a few years ago. Published in German originally, I believe, but also in, in uh, Russian, and then um, there is an English translation, but I don't, I don't think it's been published yet. Um, called More Than Joyce, and it's it's a number of things. It's a kind of mini biography of Joyce, and in particular his last um, last years, last really last moments. Um, 
and the celebration of Finnegan's Wake um, and describes um, how, according to Shishkin, uh, Finnegan's Wake works. This, uh, what he calls a kind of incantation of language, and some sort of sorcery magic about it, and the way it goes, you know, cycle uh, cycles from end to beginning and, and all over again. Um, and it struck me that a lot of what he says there is really about his own art, because uh, mm -hmm. Shishkin's works, and I look particularly at uh, Vignet and Volus, made in here in English. Um, uh, does these sorts of things. He's like Sokolov, uh, interested in mixing time and spaces and characters. Um, he's not really interested in plot or um, characters as such. You know, there are some characters who are unnamed, and he rarely gives physical descriptions. So the characters are really just figures that take on different identities and. Um, different experiences. One of his metaphors in there is that life and stories are like mitts. And we put our hands, put ourselves into different mitts and um, exchange identities in this way. Um, so there's a lot of resonances in, in particular with uh, Finnegan's Wake and the later Joyce um, on this kind of thematic and conceptual level. And then uh, alongside that, just as importantly, I think, is his, his love of language. You know, in Maiden Hair, for instance, he has a whole section that's uh, made up of palindromes. It's all these Russian palindromes and the translator into English, and it's been translated into other languages, but Marion Schwartz um, into English. Uh, I, 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 I um, just, yeah. I was just going to say that I um, I listened to uh, an interview with, uh, with the translator Marion Schwartz, and she said that at first oh. she didn't even notice the palindromes in Russian because they're yeah. they're very uncommon in Russian. So, I mean, I, I, I guess Russian is not as 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 made for for palindromes as English is. Um, so that was it was interesting. She didn't even notice them at first. So, but mm -hmm. but you know, it it, it it kind of shows that Shishkin is using. Is using, you know, I guess Joyce is, and I have a quote here: "It's a springboard to develop Russian literature by bringing disparate voices and tradition." And he he's very comfortable with calling himself a scissors and paste man, just like Joyce did. Um, yeah, of yeah. Sort one of collecting the, all yeah. these various threads. Yeah, go, go ahead. <laughs> right. No, exactly. He he's very open about what sometimes is called plagiarism, but uh, it's just his artistic method that he he collects pieces of other works um, of different kinds, right. quote-unquote, high-brow, etc. Right. The, the contra, the romantic notion of a genius. Yeah, he's got, exactly, a, he's got yeah. this just, meta just like style. Joyce. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just right. like Joyce exactly. is, you know, yeah. piecing together pieces. Um, he does the same thing. And it's, again, a sort of celebration and uh, recognition of, of language and literary language and generating something new out of something. Yeah old and this, I this think, also, speaks to the, the, the project yeah. as well this also reminded me uh, of my uh one of my favorite writers and you know, english english prose writers is uh, william gaddis who mm -hmm. was also a scissors, a scissors and paste man um he also used very you know similar techniques uh, uh, and by the way uh, yes pushkin appears in gaddis in a very strange way i don't know if you if you know, but he's uh, really? his last novel, *Agape Gape*, which is really a novella, and um, it's it really should be read in context of all of his other works. Oh, he's only got three other novels, really, so not not that much, except they're huge and you know challenging works. Uh -huh. But um, 
he he uh, in Agape Gape is this kind of Bernhardian Thomas Bernhardian yeah you know, kind of stream of rant nonstop ranting of a dying man and there's a recurring motif of Pushkin or Pushpin P I N because you know mm-hmm. people in the West have no idea who Pushkin is so when you say Pushkin they they hear Pushpin so okay. there's a recurring motif in that last work. Uh, of you know, push pushpin or poetry, pushpin or poetry, like occurs like four <laughs> or five times, and I thought wow. that was hilarious. And I, I got the idea. Please, nobody steal this. I'm saying it on the air. That's stupid. But here's here's an idea for either an essay, a story, or something. My pushpin, not my pushkin, which is the there usual, you, you know, to tie it, but my <laughs> pushpin, and throw in some yeah. Gaddis in there, and you got yourself something interesting. Um, <laughs> so 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 back to Shishkin. Um, um, he, what would you recommend with Shishkin as far as uh, for readers to start with? Because I, I don't know where to start with him. I read I read Vinyan Velos, um, and I read I think mm-hmm. a few other uh, things, and I really enjoyed his Joyce essay. I really hope that comes out soon. Um, more than Joyce, I read it in Bukvan um, Nisnigu, I believe is an essay collection. Yeah, there's three essays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of them is the Joyce one. Um, I really, uh, I think more of Shishkin should be translated. His nonfiction should be translated uh, immediately, uh, yesterday, because it's just, it's, it's fascinating. And this, his voice is really important for what's going on right now in this chaos is, yeah. of, of yeah. war and identity. He is the, he's got, uh, he's got perspective. He's also an emigre. He's, he, you know, he's left. Uh, actually, I don't really know where he lives. He's still he's still in Switzerland. Is he a Swiss citizen? He's still in Switzerland. Not sure. Yeah, the north northwest. Yeah. yeah. So he's got this outsider perspective now, but yet he's also got the chops of the Russian language, really, you know, down deep into his in his blood. So, uh, where would you recommend readers who are not familiar with Shishkin start with him? I think um, so. In English, his only he has. Two novels translated, uh, Maiden Here, uh, his third novel, and then his fourth novel is translated as The, the Light in the Dark, by, um, translated by Andrew Bromfeld. Um, I, I would say in some ways the, the Light in the Dark is maybe more accessible, if that's, if that's a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of epistolary novel. Um, there's two voices uh, responding kind of <laughs> to each other. Um, I think it's it's brilliant as well. My my absolute favorite is is Made in Hair, um, uh, so that one's all available. Also available. Unfortunately, his first two are not yet. So I heard the, his second, the the taking of Ismail Ziatia Ismaila, mm-hmm. um, is in the works. Um, it's it's a challenge. So I understand why why it's taking a while. Um, and uh, he does have short stories. Um, available in translation, so that's that's also a possibility. But I don't know. I mean, it, uh, I, I think Maiden Hair would really. Um, it, it's okay. My, my favorite and my top choice. Yeah. Oh no, well, that's that's a, a wonderful place to start. And you know, before I forget, I really I'm so glad that I have somebody who might know the answer to this, uh, uh, or at least illuminate me a little bit more. Um, yeah, hopefully. Can, so. uh, uh, I'm sure you will. You'll have something to say about it because Shishkin just exalts this writer, Alexander Goldstein, right? He thinks yeah. he is the the bomb. And you know, in 100 years, we'll all be talking about him. 
and writing essays and whatnot. Um, I got, I somehow, you know, found a copy of his essay, uh, his essays, and I could not really, I think my Russian maybe is not up to par or something, or maybe I'm just not familiar with his corpus. Um, who is Alexander Goldstein? And really, is Shishkin correct about this, or is it just his little quirk? Should we like, be looking for, for this guy? <laughs> I, as, as far as I know, yes. I, I have to confess that I, I haven't read him myself either. Um, you know, despite you know, reading uh, what, what Shishkin has said about him, I've spoken to Shishkin about him as well, about Goldstein. Um, uh, but you know, also Sokolov um, really loved his work right, as well. That's right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and knew him in Israel um, and wrote uh, after he, he died. Uh, wrote a, an essay, a kind of response response to him as well. Um, so as, as far as I know, unfortunately, all I can say is that the, the, the most I know is that the, the kinds of writers that I uh, adore and whose, whose work I really appreciate um, speak highly of him. So he seems to be really a kind of writer's writer, and um, I, I, he's not mentioned that often necessarily I, you know he's not constantly well right it's kind of like a in text but like a secret or something yeah <laughs> so yeah, what's yeah, going yeah, on yeah. with that <laughs> well i guess it's something so I, to I, I, to work on right something to discover yeah absolutely yeah i'm not, I'm, I'm with you though and uh feeling like I, I need to need to check them out well it's great because you know this it's it's wonderful to know that there's somebody like that out there that that will give you that pleasure if you invest the time and I mean, that's generally been my, my way of approaching literature is you, you read somebody you love and then you're like, what does that person love? What is exciting, exactly. exciting yeah. him or her, you know, and then you follow the right. breadcrumbs. And so I've been trying to get into Goldstein. I have, like I said, I have, a, I think it's called Rastayanias Narcissum, the mm -hmm. book of essays, yeah. uh, very interesting looking essays, but I have no way of getting into them. Um, I need some sort of context and it seems to be lacking. I mean, there's no English translations. Uh, I can't find his Russian novel. I think or two, whatever. You know, I think he wrote a couple. Um, so it's hard to find, and nobody's like you said, nobody's talking about it. So, or very few people are. Maybe just scholars, a few scholars. But uh, I think it's another potential discovery for us readers that could be enormous. Uh, so I'm really, really excited about that, and I'm you know thankful to Shishkin for for cluing us in. I yeah. just want to actually dig in at some point, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there's so many of those. So, yeah. So let's, you know, your book closes really in a, in a fascinating way. You, uh, you, you interview uh, a bunch of contemporary Russian authors, you know, living in Russia, uh, very, from various backgrounds, uh, um, and, and you know, not just writers, you know, you know, historians, what, you know, intellectuals, basically. And mm -hmm. they all have these interesting responses to Joyce. Uh, some of them are, are completely saying, yeah, yeah, of course, he was an incredible influence on me. I read you know, Ulysses, was completely changed, and it, it influenced my writing. And others are saying, well, not really, you know, maybe, maybe some stories, Dubliners. So what is the general sense of Joyce today? Uh, I, I know general is a, is, a, is a bad word to use, but, you know, what is, is Joyce still being contended with? Is he still being, is he still a force in Russian letters? I think so, I, you know, and I think just in similar ways, perhaps, to, to other places like the States, 
there are some, like you said, like I reported in, in this conclusion, um, who feel that he's a writer that everyone talks about and is aware of, but doesn't actually uh, get read, um, who, whose work isn't actually read. That it's really a matter of reputation and maybe um, kind of someone whose name you uh, link to in order to raise your own status in some way. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, absolutely. I think there, there are you know, a number of writers and um, a good number of writers and some of them I uh, interviewed for, for the conclusion um, who will say that he's still a tremendous influence and they're still responding to him, incorporating elements of his um, work into, into their own um, uh, He's, you know, he's, well, who knows what's going to happen in the future in Russia at this point. Right. He's, you know, he's, he's taught in uh, programs in uh, English literature over there. I spoke to this group, which isn't massive by any means, but this, this collective of uh, Russian intellectuals, basically, who uh, have a, a weekly meeting um, on Zoom, and they started before the pandemic on, on Zoom. Um, the the and, slow reading, the slow reading club. Yeah, is that what it's called? Territory, territory of slow mm. reading. Yeah. So they they they've read Ulysses, right. read works related to it, and then not too long ago, I, th- I think at the beginning of this year, they they started reading Finnegan's Wake. Um, yes, finally. <laughs> yeah. So it, you know, I, I, again, it's not. I, I can't claim that they are representative of you know a, a massive movement to to rejoice in Russia, just like we can't say that here. Uh, but nonetheless, no, you no, know, it, it yeah. speaks to the kind of enduring presence and enduring um, curiosity and fascination. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, on that and I'm assuming it, they're reading it. it yeah. I'm well, assuming, sorry. I'm assuming they're reading it in Russian or is it English? Because I mean, the Russian translation of Finnegan's Wake just appeared last year, right? I mean, it's exactly. just, yeah, just that's, what, that's what I was going to say. Right? At, at the end of December, yeah. it appeared. Um, I think they're, I, I think they're attempting it kind of in, uh, side by side, um, they're reading mm, that's a good idea. Uh, the English. They read the the English Ulysses, you know, probably referencing the the translation at times. But yeah, I think that's that's exactly what I was going to mention. This uh, kind of mo- momentous. I, I remember uh, event a few years ago. A few years ago, there was a um, there was a project called Waywords and Mean Signs. Um, I don't know if you were aware of that, but it was a <laughs> recording, Finnegan's Wake, uh, set to music. And okay. um, it was a wonderful project. Uh, and, you know, there's various sort of people doing it. Uh, you know, read a page and maybe accompanied by some interesting music. Mm-hmm. And I, I ended up being asked that, to do the Russian <laughs> first page. And I oh, found, wow. I don't remember what translation it was, but I found something online. Uh-huh. Um, and and it, I I read it in in my horrible Russian. I read it. It's made it's made even more horrible because it's not really Russian, you know. So you don't know where the <laughs> accent's supposed to go, and right. so it sounded very strange to me. But it was an interesting experiment. I thought um, reading it because you know you have to read Finnegan's Wake out loud. And so yeah. when I was reading it, but in Russian, it it gave me a I don't know some sort of a cognitive dissonance. It mm-hmm. was it was a, it was a strange experience. So, but but I mean maybe really there is something to the fact that the wake cannot be translated really. Um, 
uh, at least not because you're, you're doing it for the sound it's all about the ear you know joyce is going blind it's all in the ear the ear wicker mm -hmm. the earworm you know the it, it's it's aural and so the russian was very strange um but mm -hmm. but hey yeah, the yeah more translations, uh, the better so that's i think there's it's either out now or, or very soon but uh, a book called finnegan's wakes um i'm blanking on the subtitle uh by patrick o'neill um and it's all about the the translation history of, of finnegan's wake into you know as, as many languages as, as he could find which is quite a few surprising uh surprisingly um so if people are interested in, in the translation history and how different uh translators have wrestled with it yeah i mean some there's just so many problems. Do you, do you localize all the references to, right. to Dublin and Ireland and make them, you know, Spanish references or, I don't know, German references or Chinese, Japanese, whatever, um, to, you know, get at the, the sound play as well? Um, and how do you render all the puns, et cetera? Um, so on its own, I think, I think I the history is just really I fascinating. You need the ideal translator with ideal insomnia. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to do that. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a never-ending task, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Jose, be, be, before I can't let you go before we talk about. I, we got to talk about um, your digital humanities project of uh, yeah. uh, annotating uh, Sasha Sokolov's second really dense, very waking novel between dog and wolf. I, I want listeners to know that this is a ongoing project you just started it i'm excited to reread this book because it's really hugely helpful to me somebody you know very rusty uh russian with no really cultural context um or very little uh, to have the, both the russian and the english right on the computer screen i can just click right between them if things get a little confusing and so the english illuminates or helps to illuminate the russian the russian sort of helps me with the english a little bit to see so the connections are wonderful this is a very uh, fecund experiment here that you're doing and I, I think people really get a lot out of it if they sort of join in um, how can is, there's a website I believe right it's a it's um, I believe digital humanities at Bryn Mawr uh, uh, .edu yes so, uh, digital humanities at Bryn .edu slash dog I think or something but it, you know if people are curious they can reach out to me or reach out to you and you'll put me in touch um, but yeah, like you said, it's this uh, bilingual um, annotated edition of uh, Sasha Sokolov's very dense, very complex <laughs> second novel. Um, um, and it, it just struck me that we need something like this for a book. You know, there's these digital versions of Finnegan's Wake uh, that you can click on words, phrases, sentences, and annotations pop up right there. Oh, right. And, I mean, tweet, tweet, that's tweet is indispensable. So if you're creating something similar, which looks like you are for yeah. Between Dog and Wolf, this is going to be wonderful because it's uh, the book has been sort of close to me before. I tried with the Russian. Uh, I, I love his language, but I, I, I begin to disconnect because I can't quite follow it. Mm -hmm. And so this is supremely helpful. I'm so happy that you're doing this. I'm definitely going to be part of this myself. Yeah, I hope um, so. And I, I, I should just mention yeah. my um, my mm -hmm. co-creator, co-collaborator here, Martina Napolitano, a uh, colleague from from Italy. Just want to make sure to to give a shout out. She's uh, oh, of course, collaborated on other Sokolov uh, projects, and it's it's been great working with her. And yeah, you know, our hope is just to 
it's not popularize and make more accessible <laughs> uh, between yeah, at least, so, yeah 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 let people know about this book because it is it is a special a special case of the Russian language here here we have yeah. something something different uh, from everything else yeah uh, in Russian yeah. and uh, the interface uh, the, you know is great it's super clean it's super easy to use uh, mm -hmm. So I'm I'm extremely excited about that, Jose. So that's it's a wonderful, yeah, thanks. wonderful and, project. Anything, know, anything else you're working on like that? That's that's uh, that we should know about. Um, like that, your and, big projects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I mean, um, well, first I just wanted to mention the the, the uh, I'm not sure if I did the the title of this project is the, the Encyclopedia of the Dog, which Sokolov oh, right. yeah. himself gave gave to us, which is a wonderful <laughs> idea, because we want it to be encyclopedic. Who, Every single word needs to be annotated. Who, um, who came up with Dogopedia? <laughs> Dogopedia? Uh, I think that was Martina. Uh, yeah, that, that's our shorthand for, okay, for, that's, for what we're working that's on. That's also yeah. good. I love that one, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, after finishing this uh, this Joyce project, I've been thinking about what's next. And uh, my, my main new big research project is on um, Contemporary, meaning the last 30 years, uh, contemporary Russian Russophone uh, prison literature. So fiction, nonfiction, kind of everything, just what prison is and what prisons look like in, uh, in Russophone literature. Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. So this is like, like, a, like, like, uh, like uh, political prisoners or just general prisoners like, kind of everything yeah i mean I'm, I'm not limiting everything. it to like the solzhenitsyn you know contemporary solzhenitsyn it's it's not it, memoirs are included but um i'm also just interested in the kind of concept of, of prison incarceration um in in this literature and uh how it's been represented and um taken in different ways so looking at memoirs but also looking at for instance historical fiction that takes place in, you know, the, the Soviet Union and gulag camps, et cetera, but, but written in the last 30 years and um, how these writers are fitting themselves into that tradition and or not, or writing in opposition to it, um, those sorts of issues. Mm. Well, I, I know that my co-host Rob Fay would be very, very interested in that. He's, he's always been interested in prison writing and stuff like that. So oh, cool. it yeah. sounds really, really, really cool. Absolutely. Um, well, uh, Jose, I, I I should probably let let you go, and uh, I've yeah I've just been really um, fortunate to speak with you after a lot of technical difficulties as usual. Um, uh, your book is your book is really I mean really uh, shedding new light for me, uh, uh, both on the writers that we discussed and on Joyce himself. So it goes both ways. Uh, I think you you really uh, hit on a, a nerve for me at least, uh, and I think for a lot of people. Because there's so much Joyce stuff going around, you know, especially if you're a Joycean or you consider yourself, you know, somebody who's interested in Joyce, um, and have this kind of crossover, this bridge, to this incredible uh, literary tradition uh, in in Russia is really uh, is just awesome. So I'm really I've really enjoyed the book. I think I'm going to be coming back to it quite a bit. I urge uh, our listeners to also get it, and uh, it's a wonderful reference, uh, and it will also just make you think differently about uh, uh some of the stuff that you know i think you might, you might have taken for granted before um so thank you so much for joining us jose and uh hopefully you'll join us again maybe in a future yeah. project that'd be great no i would, I, I would love to you know I'm, I'm a fan of the show and i just want to say thanks for, for all the kind words and for having me it's, it's been a pleasure i'm glad it worked out wonderful all righty thank you so much
拜，拜拜。